everybody, and welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, as always, Kerry Parker, and we've got another great interview for you today. I'm going to be talking with Sean O'Brien. He's the uh, head of the Yale Privacy Lab, and I ran across his name reading an article recently uh, about basically tracking in real life. All the, take all the things we've talked about in this show about when you're surfing the web and all these ads and web pages and things that are trying to track what you do online. You know, and now take that into out into the real world when you're walking around in front of advertisements, they're tracking you now too, believe it or not. Yeah, I know. It just keeps getting worse, right? Several times on this show, I've mentioned the movie Minority Report with Tom Cruise. And if you haven't seen it yet, it's a good one to watch. It's, you know, it's entertaining in its own right. Um, but apropos of today's show, as Tom is walking around, as his character is walking around town and he's trying to be... Uh, clandestine as he moves he can't because uh, the advertising all this active advertising on billboards with moving screens uh, also have built-in monitors and they're scanning his irises his, his his eye patterns and recognize him as he approaches and the ads change to be tailored toward him as he approaches them in fact it calls him by name and says you know if i recall correctly it's you know things like hey we haven't seen you for a while how about this special deal or something like that these are starting to happen in real life. Now, it's less creepy only because it's less obvious in that these ads are tracking you, but they're they're not making it overtly obvious that they're tracking you, however. Uh, and, you know, and this is not everywhere yet, This, but it's starting to happen. And uh, I read this article about this, and uh, the author of the article was interviewing Sean O'Brien about it and getting his feedback, and so I thought that would make a great episode. So with that as our intro, let us bring on Sean and have him tell us all about it himself. All right, and with us today, as promised, is Sean O'Brien. He's the founder of Yale Privacy Lab and teaches cybersecurity at Yale Law School. Uh, he's an expert in mobile device forensics and works for Purism, a company dedicated to securing private laptops and phones, a name that we have talked about recently. Welcome to the show, Sean. I'm happy to be here. And uh, I didn't really, I didn't know literally till like an hour ago that you were associated with Purism. I had, <laughs> I'd found you a different way, I believe, in Yale Privacy Lab. And of course, the, re, uh, the listeners will know, I just talked to Todd Weaver, the CEO of Purism, like, I don't know, three, four weeks ago. So quite the coincidence. Um, but it, again, not really surprising given the, the kind of stuff we're talking about here today. Um, let me just set, let me set this up for the listeners because uh, what I, how I found you is I read this article um, and I'm just going to read a paragraph from this article to kind of set things up, and then we'll go in from there. And it, uh, So it says this. It says, During this year's Fashion Week in New York, a digital billboard ad for New Balance used AI technology to detect and highlight pedestrians wearing exceptional outfits. A billboard advertisement for Chevy Malibu recently targeted drivers on Interstate 88 in Chicago by identifying the brand of the vehicle they were driving, then serving ads touting its own features in comparison. And Baidu, Baidu, I'm not sure you pronounce that, a Manchester, England-based uh, startup that admits it was inspired by Minority Report, uh, a movie we've talked about several times in the show, is using facial recognition to serve ads through its billboards in the UK and other parts of Europe as well as South Korea. According to its website, they allow, uh, Baidu allows advertisers to target people based on criteria like age, gender, ethnicity, hair color, clothing color, height, body shape, perceived emotion, and the presence of glasses, sunglasses, beards, or mustaches. So, so that was the setup. That was what, what got me ever to read this article. And, and, you know, as I kind of like to say, you know, it was one thing, you know, when, you know, the, the advertisers wanted us to watch the ads, but now the ads are watching us. Um, so first, <laughs> I guess before we get too much further, tell us a little bit about yourself and Yale Privacy Lab. What do you guys do and what do you do there? Sure. Um, so Yale Privacy Lab is an initiative at Yale Law School. Um, so we have kind of an interesting niche. Um, we do technical stuff. Um, we show people how to use Tor, the anonymity network. We show people how to use encryption. Um, we show people how to um, share more securely, communicate more securely. Um, but we also dig into some of the legal issues, um, some of the digital uh, um, freedom issues around, you know, privacy and, and how we're being tracked all the time. Um, mm. And we also kind of have gotten into this weird world of mobile device forensics. So mm. um, within the last year or so, we've been looking at uh, mobile apps very closely. We've been looking at trackers. We've been looking at the sort of 
um, the the unfortunate marrying of the real world, the physical world that we're used to, and the internet world, which I think is what you're most interested in. And um, we've looked at things like ultrasonic tracking, mm-hmm. via, you know, Bluetooth beacons, and all kinds of crazy stuff, which sounds mm-hmm. like you said, Minority Report, but unfortunately, it's kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Yeah. Um, the, these advertisers are trying to do this stuff actively um and they're kind of doing it almost with sci-fi as their guide unfortunately um so yeah that's what we do we look into that stuff well that's a perfect setup because i yes that is why i brought you here today because we we definitely want to talk about that and and some of those things you ticked off are, are definitely going to be um uh covered today because I, I you know when i talk to I, I teach a class at duke for um uh, continuing education. And, you know, I try to explain some of these things about, you know, like ultrasonic track and they just look at me like, you've got to be kidding me, you know, and, and, <laughs> and tinfoil hat kind of black helicopter stuff. And it's just, you know, as I, I assume we're going to get it today, it's, it's actually happening. So, you know, you know, my listeners of the show certainly know all about virtual tracking as, you know, as we surf the web and things like that. But recently I'm seeing a lot more articles about tracking in the real world. And, and, and a lot of these articles have said it's been going on for a long time. Uh, so how, how long has this been going on, this, this real-life tracking? Um, so um, basically, um, the whole Web 2.0 thing, right, the, the, with that terrible acronym, we don't like the 2.0 inversioning of the web, but we got used to it in the mid-2000s. We got used to the idea of ads being very active in collecting information about us and finding digital channels to do that. So um, using our network activity or the browser we're using or the operating system we're running. Um, And then when smartphones came in, um, you know, what smartphone we were running. Um, That stuff moved into the late 2000s, early 2000s. And then when the concept of Internet of Things came in, right, having these Mm. small mini computers everywhere that were really smart and really able to collect information about people and then also the fact that smartphones got smarter and smarter and the average smartphone has tons of sensors in it and we're carrying that around in our pockets all the time Um, retailers got very much into this idea of marrying the real physical Mm. world with the digital world of tracking Um, i would say that it probably started around 2012 2013 the early early proof of concept of a lot of this stuff um, and if you look at tracking companies, um, a lot of their demos and so on, and the, when they were getting venture capital and so on was back then. Um, the stuff that really scares me came in around 2015-ish, um, and we started seeing it in the wild, kind of really active. And now we're seeing it as like a de facto kind of accepted, you know, this is the way business is done. And in fact, if you look at the advertising literature, there's even conversation about, well, that's kind of old fashioned. We have to look <laughs> next thing, right? Um, and that's what's driving all of these new, more um, obscure and crazy ways of tracking people. It's kind of like, what's the next big thing? What is the next big me- metric we can get out of people? And, and where can we go? So. All right. So before we get into the next level stuff, let's let's set a baseline. What what actually what sorts of things are going on now? You talk about carrying on your phone, and and as I've mentioned on the show, your phone's got several different radios in it that are constantly broadcasting, and some of those things are broadcasting IDs that are unique to your device, which means that they're probably unique to you. For example, Um, but give me an idea of like what? How does this actually work? I know some billboards actually have cameras built into them. Uh, Maybe some of them have microphones or ultrasonic stuff going on. How are we being tracked right now? Give me some examples, some real-life examples of what we're seeing uh, today. Sure. So um, I think the interesting thing and the interesting thing about this billboard story that we were talking about, which I'll, I'll talk about in a little more detail a little further down in the conversation, but the interesting sort of sort of outline of it is that there's been a reaction to um, the types of tracking that is in your face, right? So people know that it's possible for some some terrible criminal to activate their webcam, and they know that it's possible that their conversations could be snooped on um, in one way or another. So um, what's going on is data is sort of being laundered. I'm trying to at least coin this. I don't know Mm. if it's really coining, but calling it data laundering. Because um, our phones have all these sensors in them. And rather than, let's say, when you walk into a mall, um, the retailer necessarily grabbing all of the information from all of your sensors and trying to do this sort of multi-pronged attack, right? Um, 
all they need is one or two data points to say that you were there. And then they marry that information, or they, they marry is a terrible word, but they kind of <laughs> uh, take that information, they correlate it, there we go, this is my scientific hmm. term, um, with information that they now have gathered from these big data broker companies that have already gathered information from other sensors in your phone throughout other activities you've done with throughout, let's say, the past three or four years. Um, and that information is coming from your leaky mobile apps primarily. Hmm. Um, so in the case of the billboard um, situation, um, you would walk by a digital billboard, let's say, in New York City or San Francisco or Toronto or wherever, and the billboard would just take a record that you walked by, and it would try to get things like your unique advertising ID from your phone, let's say, right? Or if it can, in the case of the, the Clear Channel situation, um, they will partner with a cell phone provider to just get the um, information about you as a user walking by. So they'll know that Sean, or at least someone who seems to be Sean, walked by the billboard, and that's all they know. But then they go back and they feed that information into a system that has all kinds of profiles on Sean, right, me, um, from the mobile apps that I've been running on my phone. And those mobile apps have been gathering information from my searches, from my web activity, from you know what songs I'm playing, from what files I'm downloading, and so on and so forth. And that is being correlated, you know, you sort of gathered and put in this big database to make a profile on me, which then the Clear Channel can say, oh, you know, Sean is a middle-aged person. He's in, within this demographic. He has so, such and such, um, you, you know, salary, and this is what he does for a living. And um, that's sort of like the laundering thing. Because there's been a reaction to like the billboard directly gathering all this data at once, it's sort of like they just take that one data point that you've been there and then they correlate it. They, they go to the data brokers or the data launderers, whatever you call them, the people gathering these profiles through other means and they try to figure out who Sean is and how valuable he is as a customer um, or a target or whatever you want to call it. So what are, like, what are they doing with this data? Why, why do they want this? Is it a matter of... You know, I know that a lot of times with billboards and, and, and sales, it's that, you know, they'd like to know, you know, what sort of demographics are, you know, how many people are passing by and what are the demographics of those people so they can, you know, they can sell that space and know that it's going to be targeting, you know, certain kinds of people. Is it is it just that simple or is it is it more nefarious than that? Are they, I mean, why do they care that Sean walked by a particular uh, digital advertisement, on, you know, in downtown Manhattan? So um, the first thing I want to make sure I couch the conversation in, which I think is important to remind ourselves of, is that advertising has always been a very risky proposition, right? And um, advertisers have always gone after some crazy ideas to get in the face of consumers, which may or may not play out, right? Um, and the old adage or the old joke used to be, um, I'm spending, uh, or sorry, I'm wasting half mm. my advertising dollars, but I don't know which half. Right. right? <laughs> so right. the idea is they don't really know what's going to pay off until they try it. Um, and sometimes the act of implementing these technologies do things like convince shareholders, for example, that, okay, our company's on the right, you know, path. We're really, you know, gathering a lot of data. Great. <laughs> you know, hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to go to some profitable mountain where they, sh you know, sell a lot of stuff. Um, it just means that they're gathering data uh, and that they're getting better at correlating that data to real individuals or real audiences. Again, they're starting to change these terms because they realize there's been a lot of blowback about the Facebook thing. So let's say, well, we're not targeting you, Sean. We've actually scripted the name, Sean. Now you're just, you know, person number 1500 but you're part of this audience you know so let's say we're doing audience targeting don't worry we're not actually taking your personal info anyway just i wanted to make sure i say that up front because whenever someone asks why they do it it's kind of like well they're gonna try a lot of crazy things just because advertising has always been kind of this you know throw things at the wall and see what sticks mm. business um that all said, um, in the case of the digital billboards, what they are trying to do is take a, um, a real-world um, kind of dead 
um, advertising medium, which is physical billboards, posters, you know, placards, whatever you want to call them in, in when you go in train stations and so on. Um, a lot of consumers have been tuning this stuff out. And in mm. fact, the most valuable consumers have been tuning this stuff out. And the places where you would think a lot of this stuff is most valuable, there's so much of it, how can you ever <laughs> pay attention to any of it, right? So go to Times Square and try to pay attention to one billboard, right? right? Um, so I do think that the idea behind gathering metrics about who is walking by or even potentially driving by, although those it's harder to gather information on drivers based upon speed, really, you know, people going by. But don't worry, that'll get better with smart cars, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, they uh, I think they're trying to revive this sort of dead art form of traditional um, advertising square footage of a graphic in someone's face in a profitable area. And they're trying to prove through obscure ways of getting really good at figuring out who walks in front of it um, that they can make that thing valuable again. Um, whether that happens or not, I'm not sure. But, um, you know, that is where they're going. And, and so the beacons, you know, the Bluetooth beacons, the ultrasonic beacons serve a similar purpose, right? Malls are dying all across the world, especially in the U.S., right, where the mall used to be king. So if you walk into any mall in the U.S. and you actually record some of the sounds outside of a Macy's or an American Eagle, you'll notice there's a lot of ultrasonic tones in the ultrasonic ranges that humans hmm. can't hear. Um and these tones are there for a reason. They're there so that if you happen to have one of their apps with your microphone open, that tone will talk to your phone, and then your phone will dial some network server somewhere and say, hey, this person walked into this store, they stayed this amount of time, they stared at this shelf, and then they left. Um, whether or not that's going to actually mean they can sell more T-shirts or whatever they're trying to sell, I don't know. Um, but when you have people who are working 24 hours a day, you know, 365 days a year, this is the kind of thing they're going to come up with. So these companies invariably will tell you that they that they are doing this for you, <laughs> that they that they are trying to customize your experience and they're trying to avoid showing you ads that you don't care to see. Isn't that a good thing? You know, isn't that, you know, that's what they would say. Um, and they're also saying, uh, invariably that they are de-anonymizing or aggregating or somehow making you anonymous. And it's just, they're just getting data points and they don't really know that it's, that it's you. First of all, if that were true, that, that seems, oh, that it could be okay, maybe if that were really true. Uh, but is it really? Is it really true? Right. And how hard is it to you know? You know, it's all in the implementation, right? It, you can try to anonymize data, but I've also heard several ways that you could quickly de-anonymize that same data if you try. Sure. So on the first point, um, you know, I without getting into my personal politics and the way I feel about crass capitalism in this way. Um, I will just posit this. If it were the Chinese government that was telling Chinese citizens, um, you know, giving them value add, let's say, mm. or trying to guide their uh, user journey or all these terms that advertise in the US, we'd say, well, of course, they're propagandizing the Chinese population and they're trying to get them to do what they want. So I just want us to think the same way through the same lens about yeah. our own society because a lot of this of course is self-fulfilling prophecy anyone who grew up in the 90s as i did knows how strong brands are mm. and how much those become the identities of children especially um and become you know the way that people sort of invest their identity um in this world that we have where uh, you're trying to express your identity through a few the brand you're wearing, how you're looking, you know, what food you're eating that you're taking photos of and what restaurant, you know, we've become very um, not about introspection and what we think and more about what we wear and what we're doing sort of visibly. And, um, you know, again, I don't want to get into politics per se, but if, if you believe that this is a good direction for the society to go into, um, then you're going to be very much at odds with me <laughs> and I'm sure many of your listeners. Um, so, and there's a question about democracy and, and, and so on in, in all that. Um, so 
beyond that, um, the other question you ask, I think, is really, really um, almost more important. Um, these advertisers will tell you they are anonymizing usage statistics. Um, early on in the web, it was very obvious that um, using only a few data points, you can gather a lot of information mm. about users. So in the mid-90s, when JavaScript started becoming a thing, right, websites started gathering uh, birth date and um, zip code. Um, which, if your listeners are aware of what they ask for at a supermarket, it's usually these two things, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's because there's very few people, it turns out statistically, that live in your zip code <laughs> with the same birthday. Um, and depending on the size of your town or city, it, it gets smaller and smaller. So if you're going to send junk mail out, and that used to be the old analogy, you would just do it to all the houses that you can figure out are within the same zip code with the same birthday, right? Mm. Um Nowadays, that, that analogy can be applied much more broadly, right, for audience targeting. Um, Netflix, when it was still a CD mailing um, company, um, they used to have what they called the Netflix Challenge. And they actually mm -hmm. worked with a bunch of researchers, supposedly anonymized their data sets, and then gave those data sets to researchers to dig through. And they were offering incentive to even just the average web user um, you know, who wanted to dig through their stats will give you X amount of money or whatever the prize Yeah, I was. remember that. Yeah. And um, what started to happen was very quickly, people were de-anonymizing the data sets. Mm. Um, and the way they were doing it was by correlating with other online services. So, for example, there were some people who said, we can figure out uh, within a reasonable, reasonable degree of certainty, you know, how many people in the Castro neighborhood of San Francisco um, rented milk and then we can guess based upon these other metrics that we figured out whether or not we think they're gay so now we're trying to decide you know how gay is the castro still <laughs> right <laughs> you know and those types of things i'm sure when netflix put out their data set they didn't expect um, people to be able to figure out and yet they did right now things are so much more robust, so much more complex. These panels and data profile, these tools that advertisers have on the back end um, to analyze individuals are so much more robust. So just because my data profile, my digital doppelganger, may not have Sean O'Brien attached to it, does not mean that we should consider that anonymous. Hmm. In fact, I would say we need to stop thinking about personally, personally identifiable information as being the only thing we care about. Behavior is probably more so something hmm. we should care about. Where we go, who we hang out with, who's in our social graph, and so on and so forth. Um, so yeah, these companies, and, and if you see you know, any stories I've been involved with, this is always what the advertisers say in their response. Well, we anonymize the usage right. statistics. You know? But again, it's a conflict between expectations under the law and legal definitions, or at least you know, what, what people expect um, you know, the law should be, I guess, or what advertisers expect the law should be, and what actually happens in the real world. You know, um, so we need to start thinking differently about privacy, really, if we're going to actually care about real anonymity. Right. So uh, speaking of, you know, being a being a number, uh, one of the things I, I see often on phones that I see um, talked about as far as a privacy measure is resetting your advertising ID. So uh, this is a comment on mobile phones at both Apple and Android, I believe. Um, and there's. It, this this irks me so much being a privacy guy. You go into Apple, even Apple, who you know has made major claims that it is that it is not yeah. da data driven, still has this thing. And when you go into privacy, there's a thing that says limit ad tracking. There's no don't track me. It's right. <laughs> it's limit ad tracking. And then this notion of resetting your advertising ID. What what does it mean to limit ad tracking? What am I really doing? Is it really helpful? And why do I have an advertising ID? And why would I want to reset it? So the first thing I want to say about Apple is not only does Apple have um, apps that track you as much or perhaps more than Android apps, depending on your metric and what you're looking at, 
Um, but they also champion, they are the first de facto standard for these beacons we were talking about in malls, these little devices that track people via Bluetooth or ultrasonic. They have the eye beacon standard, of course, because it's got to be eye everything yeah. for Apple. Um, so any ch you know anything they say about privacy until they start cleaning up uh, that kind of activity and that kind of business practice, I don't believe. Um, but the question you ask about the advertising ID is interesting. The first thing we should really posit is why we ever allowed such a concept mm. as an advertising ID into yeah. the settings of our phone. Right. You know, as something we broadcast. You know, um, it's an absurdity that we ever allowed that. Um, but the other thing is, like you say, um, it is really, really difficult to tell what's meant when you toggle a setting like that on or off. Um, as we know, and this is something I was very much involved in, um, the uh, Google location uh, tracking, right, where people mm. were toggling that off, yeah. and the expectation was, well, Google's not going to track my location anymore. And totally not the case. Right. Um, you know, so um, the user interface is not designed to be our friend. It's designed to basically, you know, cover their asses, to be frank. Yeah. Um, so they may be able to make the case that when you do that, you're opting out of certain types of tracking. But that doesn't mean they're not allowed to do other types of tracking. Um, the other part of this that's interesting, so at Yale Privacy Lab, we've looked at mobile apps um, that have hidden snippets of code in them. Mm. These are um, typically called SDK, Software mm -hmm. Development Kits. And they those can be useful functionality, right? These are the these are like what we would call libraries, yeah. you know, developers otherwise. Um, but many times these SDKs not only offer some functionality, like let's say embedding a Google map, but they also are tracking information about the user. And there's no way to opt in or out of that stuff, certainly not through a menu setting. So um, even if you're on an Apple device and you're installing some Google thing and you, you turn off whatever setting within, within Apple settings or you're on an Android device and you do the same thing or you're using Apple, whatever maps you're using or browser you're using and you start doing these general things to turn off tracking, there is no guarantee and many times no built-in functionality to corral in all of these apps that we've installed on top of the operating system, you know, the Ubers, the Lyfts, the whatever the heck they are. Yeah. Um, and, and those apps are not going to necessarily obey those settings. I've never seen any evidence that um, the owners, the stewards of the app stores, Apple or Google, have even tried to rein in that stuff. Yeah. Um, they'll talk about malware. They'll talk about, you know, terrible. You know, but they don't try to rein in these data practice, you know, these data collecting practices uh, amongst these third-party apps. So, um Good luck. I mean, it's a good thing to turn these settings off, but it's sort of a panacea, unfortunately. Yeah, and I just want to, um, I wanted to bring that up. And so, you know, I'm a software engineer. We do this stuff all the time. And that's in the software engineering today is very much about uh, lifting what you can from other places. There's a lot of free and open source software you can get and, um, oh, or stuff that you buy either way. But these frameworks, these SDKs, as you call them, these libraries, can save you a lot of time if someone's already you know invented the wheel um you know right. in, in software a lot of times you would just go buy that wheel instead of making it again yourself and but to your point what's going on behind the scenes is these app developers um or cranking out these apps you know like to go get these little frameworks like you said a great example is i want to embed a map well i don't want to write software that, that embeds a map I, someone's already done that so right. i'm doing something else so i want to go i want to go pull this other thing off the shelf that already does that. But what now you're bringing in software that you didn't write and you don't necessarily know what that software is doing. And I've seen several articles recently uh, about apps that had to be pulled because of some framework they were using under the covers, you know, by some nefarious company that, yeah, sure. Here's my free framework. Please feel free to use this on all your apps without royalties or whatever. But behind the scenes, they're, they're snarfing your data and, and using that to monetize it. Yep. So free and open source software is the best software out there, period, and, and can be the most private and secure, right? But the problem you're pointing to is that um, 
basically there's this culture of bootstrapping your app as quickly as possible. You're developing it quickly. Yep. Maybe you're a startup. Maybe you're trying to get it bought out at some point or you're not. You're just trying to get something done really fast, iterate it and get it out there so you can do demos for, you know, VC or whatever, <laughs> you know. And uh, so you do that. And then in the meantime, these apps are either tied to, um, you know, third party services that you have no reason to trust or don't care how trustworthy they are as long as they give you the functionality. Right. Um, and also, certainly, you haven't taken a, a, a long, hard look at the code and the licensing and the privacy aspects of, of those those SDKs or libraries or whatever you want to call them. Um, so this is a symptom of our, um, you know, data-driven economy, really, um, and especially our sort of, um, you know, this sort of fantasy that everybody in Silicon Valley is going to create these startups and become millionaires overnight. It means, you know, it means that you get these sloppy development practices that are not privacy-respecting because privacy is not even on the radar. It's just now sort of getting on the radar because mm. now people are asking for it. Um, but it remains to be seen how strongly we can do that. And of course, you know, you or I might understand software development much better um, than, than quite a few people. But, you know, the average user has no reason to even think, you know, oh, I got this app. They have a great reputation. They, it works well. They don't seem to be overtly tracking me. And then, you know, you do static analysis, meaning you look at the actual code of the app and it's filled with all kinds of tracking code. Yeah. You know, and the developers themselves are like, well, that's just, you know, what I inserted because I needed to insert it. Otherwise, I would be dead in the water. Um, so this is a symptom of our, our um, the development process, unfortunately, that has become so popular. And part of that is just not respecting privacy as, as an important thing for the bottom line at all. So. So we've talked a lot about mobile devices and, you know, the fact that we're carrying around these supercomputers in our pockets that are loaded with sensors and are constantly connected to the Internet. And obviously that is a, a, a source of privacy concern. Uh, not, not only are they, you know, autonomously sending things, but they're interacting, as we've talked about today, interacting with, you know, things in their environment that lets them uh, know more precisely what you're doing and where you're at and, and, uh, actually commun reverse communicate with whatever these things are in your environment that may be, uh, given you up. One that we haven't really talked about too much though, is like facial recognition and cameras, security cameras, you know, were security cameras for a long time. And now they're actually more like surveillance cameras. Uh, I know I just recently talked on the show about an article I read where there are marketing companies that are actually going to places like Home Depot and saying, hey, you've got all the security cameras. Let's monetize that. Let me put some facial recognition software on that. And now you can recognize when customers come back. You can, you can pay, you know, see how long they, they looked at your ad that's, you know, or looked at that special display. Um, there, I've heard tell of companies that are now installing, um, uh, video cameras into street lamps uh, and right, you know, those little radar things when you're driving down the street and there's a little thing that says you're going too yeah. fast and it flashes at you, putting cameras in those and either reading license plates or doing facial recognition. Again, you know, whatever, every time I start saying these things, I, I, I feel like I've got the tinfoil hat brigade going that it, that it just sound uber paranoid, but this is, this is happening, right? It's totally happening. <laughs> so, and again, <laughs> Whew, it's okay. not like, um, it's it's not like it's, you know, evil, you know, terrible people in the background sort of. It's this self-fulfilling prophecy thing. The technology keeps moving. People keep buying the technology that has these features in it. Eventually, these features get turned on. People decide there's a way to either monetize it or make some other use of these features. You know, it's sort of this slow sort of roll towards... You want to call it totalitarianism, you know, that's fine. Mm. <laughs> I hope we don't end up there. Uh, but it is sort of this kind of like, you know, incremental thing. And that's why, although it sounds like tinfoil hat stuff, you know, it, it we're moving swiftly towards it. Um, so my personal experience with, with this area, um, I've done a lot of work at Yale Privacy Lab and then some other side work as well um, with um, looking at security cams, mapping them. So in New Haven, we actually crowdsource and we have uh, a project that's we do at Yale Privacy Lab. We do workshops. We bring people around New Haven and we map out taking photos of and marking down at the very least the locations of cameras around mm. the city. Um, 
And these cameras are growing exponentially, yeah. even in our small little city, um, which is not a very large one. Um, New Haven's a good example that's very interesting to me, be, A, because it's got such a Ivy League kind of big college town. But B, it's also got a, a, a weird grid structure, or at least um, a grid structure that's uncommon many other places. Um, so you can almost kind of predict where the cameras are going to hmm. be, what corners are going to be on, and so on and so forth. Um, anyway, long story short, you know, I've seen the control rooms of um, some of these cameras. Um, the city, to their credit, has been kind enough to allow me in there with an eye towards, you know, letting me as a privacy advocate look at some of this stuff. And the problem isn't so much that the people in a city like New Haven are trying to do facial recognition, although in some cities they're more, I'd, I'd say, savvy about it. The problem is that they're contracting out to third-party vendors, and these vendors are shoving this technology in. Mm -hmm. They're saying, don't worry about the storage. We'll store all mm -hmm. your images. Um, you know, We'll do all the analysis. We'll keep all the tape. Right. And that, to a municipal government, you know, to a campus, uh, you know, to a university, to a company, you know, this is the same problem with the cloud, right? Um, but but with something that should be more dear to us, which is like audio and video recording of everybody, right, <laughs> you know, yeah. whenever they're in a public space, and this stuff is being, you, you know, you know, cataloged and correlated and so on. Now, that's not to say that there isn't active policing that's using fa facial recognition technology. I'm just not aware of it locally in my municipality. I am quite aware of it elsewhere. And these cameras are using algorithms to find, you know, eyes, mouths, and noses, and then come up with um, geometric representations of someone's face, um, store that as the individual's face, and then if they find that again, when they see the same individual walking down the street, they'll then store that. Um, so they are trying to use um, facial recognition um, in the United States for this purpose. Elsewhere, places like China, they've gotten really good at it. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and they, they're very blatant about it, which I think yeah. helps them sort of not be so ashamed of doing these things out in the open. Um, but, uh, but yeah, facial recognition is getting very good. Um, Georgetown has done a, a lot of very good analysis of this. And as you might expect, it has huge implications for um, racial bias. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's all kinds of problems with racial bias with these cameras yeah. and p people being suspected of crimes they may or may not have committed and how many black people are being pulled in by these facial recognition uh, you know, analyses compared to how many white people and so on and so forth. And then you've got predictive policing, which is sort of one step closer to thought crime, right? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. Uh, where people are being analyzed, you know, based upon, you know, whatever features, where they've been, what they've done, you know, these kinds of things are coming and, and they're around. Um, the last thing I want to say, and I know I'm talking a little too much about this <laughs> specifically, but, um, it used to be that when I would talk to people from Britain, right, from the United Kingdom, that they'd be like, well, we're in CCTV land. You don't get it. It's so terrible over there. There's cameras everywhere, right? Mm. And um, I went to London at the end of last month, and sure, I noticed tons of cameras everywhere, and they had a lot of security and so on. And they had CCTV, even like ancient systems throughout throughout the city of London. Um, but honestly, I didn't notice it to the same it, like the same way I would have, I think, a few years ago. Hmm. Um, because when you walk around New York now, when you walk around Boston, um, you're seeing this stuff so much in your face all the time. And even in a place like New Haven, um, where you're just tuning it out. You know, I yeah. really, really try to think to myself, well, how bad is the UK actually with cameras? And I'm like, well, unfortunately, we're reaching that kind of parity here, and and it's scary. It's awful. Yeah. So at the at the risk of really blowing people's heads out, what we've talked about what we're doing to, to date. What's what's next? What is where are we going with this stuff? What what if this isn't bad enough? What's on the horizon? Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there was a recent um, um, tweet by an individual who looked at the privacy policy of um, uh, sleep number mattresses. Oh, I saw that. Yep. Yeah. 
And then, so what they saw in the privacy policy was a sort of a, a quick sentence about uh, microphones, <laughs> and they are, or at least audio recording, consent to record right. audio. So the assumption is there were microphones in the mattress. And then, <laughs> you know, uh, the company, Serta or whatever the company is that does a sleep mattress, they were like, well, of course we don't do that. Et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> um, so um, I contacted um, w- one of our Yale Privacy Lab collaborators down in Australia um, who goes by the handle City Freaks with City Frequencies. Mm. Um, and uh, he looked at, um, at the app that Sleep Number uses and it turns out there's hooks in that app. So there's code in that app listening to snore left and snore right. Oh my. Oh my. <laughs> um, so it seems like whether or not they, you know, it seems like they got caught before they were going to roll out something. <laughs> um, but the point is they at least had done some pretty robust work, like a lot of development work and even had it in the app that, that's in the uh, Android app store. And uh, assuming it's also in the, the iOS app store, uh, but maybe not. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, they have code in there to, to record audio from one side of the bed and the other side of the bed now, they would call that an anti-snore feature, yeah. but it's also doing a timestamp. It's also recording the full audio that it can pick up and transmitting that. It's also um, sending that via Bluetooth to your phone, which is then acting as the man in the middle to Wi-Fi, right? Um, so as, as you're aware, the sort of coupling of all these technologies, you know, they sort of daisy-chaining these things together, Um they're going to know when you're sleeping, when you're not sleeping, potentially when you're having sex, mm-hmm. you know, maybe weight pressure, these kinds of things in a bed. Now, I may or may not end up doing a little write-up on that whole thing because there is still more code to analyze. And I don't think this is actually the first time I think I've talked about it publicly that we found that code, mm-hmm. uh, but that's totally cool um, <laughs> and happy to do it. But um, but anyway, um, this is not that different, and the reason it wasn't so shocking to me, than what's going on in modern cars. Mm. Um, so what's being talked about and what's being implemented in some high-end cars uh, with, with uh, computers in them, um, you know, very smart uh, console computers, is they're looking at seats, they're figuring out pressure on the seat and weight, um, how you recline it, and so on and so forth. Obviously, they're going to figure out that you as as an individual are driving this car and Mm -hmm. that when your husband or wife takes the car, you know, it's them and not you, so on and so forth. Where you're going, they're going to couple that. They're going to have all the GPS information. They're going to know what you were listening to and when. They're going to know how fast you were driving and your driving habits. They're going to potentially be able to correlate that information with accident (laughs) info, Mm -hmm. um, maybe health info. They might be able to say, hey, you know, you were at the bar, right? And we uh, see you paid $40 and you seem to have bought two drinks. And then you got, you know, so those kinds of analyses, I think, are very close. So as far as over the horizon, just barely over the horizon, because they're almost kind of acceptable now. Um, they're not like sci-fi crazy new angles of figuring out, you know, what people are doing and when. But they are um, just sort of the natural culmination of what people have been trying to do in cars for a long time. And I think cars, unfortunately, are going to be the new frontier of real serious spying, especially in a country like the United States where most people drive all the time. So. Yeah, that Ford CEO has just gotten a lot of flack for that. They were just saying recently how you know, they've got so much data on you know 100 million customers, uh, not just from their cars, but because they probably also finance their cars. They've got they can they can link that up with all the information that you put on you know a loan application, which is extensive. Um, and he was talking about monetizing that data, and right. that I think that's the thing that just makes me the the most sad is that as an engineer. I, I can see the wonderful potential there would be for yeah. you know, beneficial uses for all these data, all this metrics. We could be using this for some really great purposes, but it seems like the common denominator is, you know, making money off of the, uh, of the information and, and destroying privacy in the process where we really could. I mean, there's a lot of great potential here if we just did the right things. So, so that's the thing, basically. You know, um, there's so much good we can do with this information, and and as you know, you know, we could be improving people's lives or you're know, doing whatever with it. Um, and maybe if your car does give you a better radio station, you know, people will be happier with that. Um, but at the same time, these uh, technologies are being used to sort of 
track every aspect of what you do, mm-hmm. right? Um, and just to me, you know, um, it's going to be really a battle between, um, well, maybe not a battle, that's the problem, right? Um, advertisers seem to be winning um, the argument. <laughs> and and whenever there's challenge about it, it's always, well, you know, this is about user preferences and so on and so forth. Um, but the privacy, you know, the real serious privacy concerns need to be on the agenda strongly. And um, what it's doing, you know, quite, uh, you know, sort of uh, non, you know, we would never assume this would be the case, but it turns out that a lot of our technologists that know a lot about this technology are becoming Luddites, right? Mm. (laughs) You know, um, we're not wanting to use this stuff or we're finding ourselves using platforms that are missing some of these features that the rest of the world is taking for granted. Um, I, for example, don't use GPS. Um, Mm. And uh, that does change my life a little bit. Oh, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) You know, um, I look up directions ahead of time and, you know, I have to, you know, every once in a while I have to turn around in a dead end or something. It doesn't change my life dramatically, but um, still it's something people take for granted. So um, it's going to be really interesting to see how the next generation is able to fight these battles and how well we're going to do. Um, Awareness is a big part of it. So just letting people know that this stuff exists, um, you know, the ultrasonic, which I always bring up, is still spooky to people. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, I kind of feel we can win that battle. You know, we can convince people that they don't want their microphones to be on so that they can be surreptitiously com- communicated with without, you know, somebody's knowledge. Um, but uh, we'll see how far that goes. You know, eventually people may say, hey, that's cool. I want that. And if incentive comes in, right, Am- the Amazons of the world, especially Amazon, um if they start really price discriminating based upon this kind of tracking, mm. it's going to be hard for people to say no anyway, for the same reason that they don't say no to the coupon um, card that they get in the supermarket. Right. You know, And even more so, you know, um, I've noticed when I log into Amazon to buy something, I get better prices than when I'm not logged in. Right? Mm, huh. um, and I've seen it, and I've seen in one case I saw a $100 difference. Oh, my. Uh, and it's like, well, how can I not want that? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's it's one of those things, even me as a very strong privacy advocate, you know, it's kind of, and I know I shouldn't be using Amazon, they're the devil, but uh, <laughs> here we are, right? It's very hard to stay away from. So um, again, you know, we'll see how things go, um, but it's it's not looking so hot. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I, as I say off on the show, I think awareness has got to be the first step because I don't think a lot of people, even though they hear people like us talking and they, and they, I think they shrug it off and, and they, they, they see the benefits, but they don't see the downsides either because there haven't been enough stories about it yet. Or I, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't really understand why people don't, don't understand what's, what's going on, but awareness has got to be first because you can't, you know, as a, if you're a free market kind of person, if you believe in capitalism, the ca- you know, the market can't work. If I, as a consumer can't compare the privacy benefits of a product a versus product B, if I, if, if I can't choose B because it protects my privacy better than it, it just doesn't work. So there's a, you know, there's gotta be transparency, I think, but I gotta ask, what do you think about, you know, regulation is that is that the is that the only answer because it, it certainly doesn't seem like companies are going to self-regulate um that has just not worked um because you know their their goal and uh, you work with purism you know that you know the goal of most companies most corporations that their fiduciary responsibility is to make as much money as possible and you know if that means monetizing your data then by gosh that's what they got to do because that's what you know they're responsible their shareholders to do whatever they can to make money um so is GDPR, you know, like the General Data Protection Regulation in Europe, which has uh, had a huge impact, I think, on businesses there. Yeah, uh, is yeah. is that the is that the only way we could answer this? Is it you know is that the only way we can address this is by the, having the government step in and, and set some guidelines? So a few things about that, at least from my personal perspective. The first one is that I don't believe in self-correcting free markets, or at least not in the world that we live in, in the way our systems are set up. Um, so I. Unfortunately, um, I'm not necessarily huge on the sort of vote with your dollar kind of hmm. mindset. I think the the wonderful thing about purism, um, which you, you know, for your listeners, uh, they do, um, we do, I should say, because wonderful company that I'm now a part <laughs> of, um, we do uh, privacy respecting, secure, um, freedom respecting, right? All free software. 
uh, stack um, hackable hardware so you can you know modify the code and look at the code and verify that it's doing what it says it's doing. Um, you know, all that software on beautiful devices that are, you know, uh, have things like uh, hardware kill switches on them. So, you know, when the Wi-Fi is mm-hmm. off, it's off, you know, when the webcam's off, it's actually off. And we're going to be shipping a smartphone on that. And I think it takes a lot of courage and really brazenness for a company like Purism yeah. to do that. Um, it's not necessarily because the market's dictating it. Yeah, right. right. Um and it's going to take a lot, and it, we have a team there that's really, really hardcore about pushing that hard. You know, I'm sure Todd Weaver and uh, you know Todd uh, has told your listeners both oh, yeah. about this, so I'm not going to go on and on. But um, it's not necessarily about market forces dictating it. I think we've now found a niche because people have started to care about privacy and security really strongly. So now a company like Purism has plateau, not plateaus. Uh, you know, huge, huge. You know. Uh, goals it, it, it can meet you know we can sort of uh, hit the heavens if we want now and, mm. and previously we might have been much more limited um, so that's good um, as far as regulation is concerned um, GDPR I think is a good thing um, the most important parts of GDPR are the parts that have um, brought data into um, the areas that previously weren't considered private data, private information, things like gender and sexuality and so on, um, are now under GDPR treated at the same level as what we would call PII, personally identifiable mm. information, um, name, date of birth, and so on. Um, under GDPR, they, they, you know, they're adding those categories, and those are really important to people um, and should be important to everyone you know, as part of their actual identity. So I think that's good. Um, the other thing that uh, GDPR does is it asks for um, informed, active, opt-in consent. Mm. Um, and that's a standard that's really actually kind of hard to meet. You know, even for well-meaning software developers, yeah, yeah. it can be hard. So, you know, trying to push that hard, you know, that's a good thing that GDPR has done sort of to the ecosystem and, and very quickly has kind of tried to get a lot of enterprise, you know, companies to... To, to obey. Um, I don't believe regulation is going to be the end-all, be-all. I think solutions come from the grassroots. Um, I think that we're going to see more and more um, software projects especially, but also just people you know, demanding and asking for privacy and security, and that maybe regulation will follow that. Um, and, and, you know, just as a caveat, you know, I'm at Yale University, I'm at the law school, and we have some people who are thinking very strongly and very clearly about regulating social networks. Uh, Jack Balkan has this idea about information fiduciaries, which mm. may be the best way to regulate social networks, right? Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, some of the tacit assumptions are that we just can't dismantle and get rid of a, a Facebook or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, or that maybe we need something like that. Um, I'd like to see what else can be done. Um, I'd like to see Facebook just be torn up and, and <laughs> fall apart. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, regulation has to work hand in hand with these more uh, uh, grassroots solutions and, and things that people are calling from below, so to speak. And um, in a country that is driving towards political answers that are not based on regulation, right? There's a lot of deregulation going on in the United States right now. Um, It's going to be interesting how that sort of comes head to head with places like the EU where they're getting more and more regulated. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen there. Well, fascinating as always, and I knew we'd touch. Uh, there's probably a gazillion other things I could ask you if we had more time, but uh, I always like to wrap up the show. You know, gives people some hope, gives people something to do, something that they can actively do to, you know, to, to make their lives better, to make lives other people's lives better. So, at the personal level, um, you know, what what do you recommend people do? How do you know? Do you have any top tips for people and how they can, you know, maybe stop some of this tracking or mitigate some of this trapping while still you know, participating in a modern in a modern world. I know that you just updated this document you called Citizen FOSS, F-O-S-S for free and open source software. And I assume that is a ripoff or not a ripoff, it's a, <laughs> an homage. Yeah. Uh, let me put, use the right word. An homage to the documentary Citizen 4, which was about Ed, Edward Snowden. So maybe start with a little bit about, the, uh, you know, what this guide is and any other just, you know, if, you, if you're talking to your mom, talking to your neighbor and they said, you know, tell me, just give me a, your top five things. What, would I, what should I be doing? 
Sure. So the first thing you want to have is an ad blocker. <laughs> okay. Yep. Um, and you need to treat advertisements as surveillance because mm. they're they're the same thing, at least in the digital world. And now we've found most billboards, right? Yeah. <laughs> Even in the physical world. So an ad blocker is huge. And an ad blocker that's not going to, um, you know, um, basically allow uh, companies to give it some money so that they don't block their ads anymore. Mm. Um, so there are a few ad blockers out there that, that do that these days. Um, Ublock's a great one. Um, DuckDuckGo has privacy essentials, which yep. not only gives you an ad blocker, it gives you a, a tr- nice analysis of what trackers are on the website. It gives you, you know, some privacy tips, you know, if you click it. Mm. So that's a really nice plugin. All of that stuff is in the browser. Um, I'd recommend you stay away from adversarial services. So in other words, services that don't care about your privacy and in fact actively try to um, take your privacy away from you. Such um, as? <laughs> those are the Googles of the world. Mm. Those are the Amazons of the world, the Facebooks, the uh, Microsofts and the Apples. I know that's like everything everybody <laughs> uses. Right. Um, but for example, you know, I think we need to think about, you know, going back to using Firefox instead of using Chrome. Yeah, you know, for sure. Not most people are using because you just can't trust that Chrome is doing what it says it's doing. And every step of the way, Chrome is going to try to get you back into that Google. Yeah, space, oh, yeah. Right. Um, so that's another one. Um, the second thing, which has gotten a lot easier recently, which is great, is um, you, you can change your email service. So um, you can actually get away from the Gmails, from the Yahoos, especially Yahoo, because, you know, for Christ's sakes, they're leaking your information. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. They're losing it every month, practically. Uh, so, yep, yeah. yeah, the breaches are a big deal. But um, beyond that, you know, um, there are good services out there. There's ProtonMail. There's Tutanota. There's a bunch of other alternative webmail providers that are really trustworthy and, in fact, will do very good um, encryption um, if you set it up to, to do so. And, and ProtonMail, generally speaking, does that by default. Yep. Um, so that's a great service. So get your email, you know, in order. Um, I would say when you're in a cafe or you're on an untrustworthy network, by untrustworthy, I mean any network that you connect to that you don't know. So you're in a bar, you're in a hotel, you're just mm-hmm. whatever, traveling. Um, either use a VPN, a trusted VPN service. And I'm not going to recommend one for, for a few reasons, but there's a lot of good ones out there. You know, there's some good ratings out there. Uh, you know, pick a trusted VPN and go with it um, if you can afford it. Um, well, I think that's the key is to use one that costs money and not use a free one, right? Exactly right, because the free VPNs, you know, generally speaking, I, I've never found a free VPN actually that uh, is trustworthy. Right. Um, so unfortunately, you got to pay for that service, and that's somewhat true for some of the email tr- providers as well, beyond Proton Mail and some of the others. Um, but um, if you're not going to use a VPN, use Tor. Use Tor browser. Um, and I know uh, Tor can be scary, and people talk about the dark <laughs> web and and so on and so forth. Um, but just try it out, see what you think of it. It's gotten a lot faster, a lot better, a lot more friendly recently. The Tor project has spent a lot of time um, making that technology really user friendly. So check that out. Um, so I guess that's that's number three-ish. Four, three-ish. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, that's that. Um, if you have an Android phone. Um, I would say use F-Droid. Make sure you use the alternative app store, really the replacement app store, we should say, f-droid.org, which will give you only free and open source software Hmm. um, apps. Some of those apps are apps that are in Google Play, um, but those apps have been stripped of trackers. And um, at Yale Privacy Lab and then the the group that we work very closely with in France, Exodus Exodus Privacy, we actually send our tracker profiles to F-Droid, and then F-Droid scans the apps to make sure that those trackers are not in them. Okay. Um, so there's a very active role, which, you know, we can say, hey, you know, if, if, for example, your listeners tell us about a tracker, we'll identify it, we'll make sure, it gets, and then F-Droid apps will not have it. We'll know they don't have it. Um, so anyway, that's a good good thing. Um, on on Apple phones, unfortunately, you're not going to have these options. There's too much lockdown on the mm. platform. Um, so think about getting another phone for your next phone. Um, <laughs> and then I guess the last thing would be, you know, sort of that sort of total kind of uh, getting out. Um, 
we need to be demanding and asking for devices that do not come with pre-installed terrible proprietary operating systems on them. Um, I know I already talked a little bit about Purism, but whether or not you buy a Purism device which has GNU slash Linux uh, on it, um, you can try out you know Linux distributions for free, uh, Debian, Ubuntu, whatever you try out on your computer, and um, you're going to be freeing yourself quite a bit from surveillance just by that step. So, you know, the next time you get a laptop, maybe on your new laptop you're not ready for it, but maybe you take your old laptop mm. and you install, you know, GNU slash Linux, Debian, Ubuntu, whatever, on it, and you try that out, and yeah. you see how comfortable you are in that. And then once you start getting comfortable, maybe you say, okay, I think I can start moving myself over in, in my, you know, quote-unquote normal life. The thing that we're very lucky these days, and, you know, I'm using one of these devices today with the GNU slash Linux uh, operating system, um, we're doing so much in the browser. There's so much software that is available on so many platforms. Um, there are really not that many reasons to be stuck in the Microsoft world and the Apple yeah, world. Yeah, true. The world. You know, you can get away from it. Yeah, and it's actually going to be good for you as an individual for your learning to know a diversity of software. Um, you're going to be far and above your peers just by getting out of some of these lockdown systems. So, well, assuming you use it, you know, Firefox for your browser or Tor browser, and it, it, you know, you're using these Web 2.0, you know, not Google Docs, but maybe Zoho Docs or some of these other ones that are that are more privacy oriented. It's sandboxed. It's so it, you're also getting yourself a little bit of a layer of you're, you're kind of slipping a condom <laughs> around what you're yeah, doing basically. a little bit. Yep. And it's not to say there are never security issues, but the other thing is they're right. patched really quickly yeah. uh, and transparently and so on and so forth. So those were not exactly five things, but I guarantee <laughs> you those are all in Citizen Foss. So they are there, and we talk about some other issues there as well. So um, Yeah, I skimmed through those slides. There's quite a lot of information in there, so it's well worth a read. And I'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes. Cool. Uh, what last question? It, do you have any recommendations for you know broader level activity and activism? What you know, how might you know? Obviously, the standard you know contact your representative applies, but uh, any other particular groups that you that you know that maybe you could donate to or follow or I don't know what it, what else could you do as a, on a broader level to to fight for maybe more regulation or to push back against some of these companies or maybe to shine some sunlight on what these companies are doing? What else could we do at a big, at a broader level? Sure. So um, I think uh, if you're going to donate, you know, take a look at projects like uh, the Tor Project, like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, like the Free Software Foundation, and give money those ways um, if you're going to donate. But, you know, that's not really activism. That's just, you know, the thing that we try to do <laughs> when, we, when we feel giving, which is it's that time of year. Um, the Electronic Frontier Foundation has a great thing called the Electronic Frontier Alliance now, mm -hmm. which is this grassroots network. And Yale Privacy Lab has been part of that since, I, I believe, the beginning, but at least since, you know, last year around August-ish. And um, what they do is they connect small groups, you know, that are trying to think about these issues, that are trying to throw these sort of events where everybody gets together and they talk about these issues, they share uh, advice about what software to use or, you know, they try to help each other through some of these things. And um, even if you have five or six people, you can form a group and you can join that alliance and then really bounce ideas off groups that have been doing it for a while hmm. that are working really hard at it. So I think forming community groups in the first place, you know, is a huge step and is really helpful. You know, it's sort of like the Linux user group, but about privacy, you yeah. know, um, that kind of concept we need to bring back a little bit if we can, or at least make it make it a big deal. And then I'd love to see more people crowdsourcing the surveillance of surveillance. Uh -huh, so, yeah. so taking photos of cameras, marking where they are on a map, and then bugging people. You know, rather than writing your representative, you can say to them, well, what are these cameras doing on my block? <laughs> you yeah. know, that's yeah. the kind of thing that I think has a little more cachet and is more, you know, uh, you know, physical and, and, and can really have an impact so you start uh, start war chalking except for surveillance exactly interesting so. all right well this was fascinating and thank you so much for coming on the show i'd, I'd love talking to you and maybe we'll have to get you back in the future because i know there's gonna be topics i'm gonna want to talk to somebody about and you are definitely somebody that would be on that list so thanks so much for coming uh sean thanks for coming to the show cool thanks so much it's been fun 
Sean O'Brien for coming on the show. Some really fascinating information there and some great tips there at the end uh, about what you can do to help at least mitigate some of this tracking. And it's it's hard. It's it's getting more and more difficult to avoid. So uh, personally, I think we're still we're still in need of some regulation around this because I don't think that companies are incentivized to stop tracking us. In fact, they're incentivized to track us and monetize our data as much as possible. And sadly, there, there are also really no consequences when they screw it up and they somehow let this data loose or give it to the wrong people. So yeah, we're going we're gonna to need to fix that. So hopefully sooner rather than later. I would like to go ahead and refer you to the, uh, the document he talked about. I'll put it in the show notes, or you can probably search for it online. Uh, and that's his personal guide. And I've looked at it. It's basically a series of slides. Uh, and there may be other uh, resources there as well. But if you search the web for Citizen FOSS, F-O-S-S, uh, which stands for Free and Open Source Software, and that's, a, that's a, again, an homage uh, to the wonderful documentary called Citizen 4, which is the, the actual real documentary about Edward Snowden and how he came to reveal what he did, uh, unlike the movie about Snowden, um, which was uh, quite dramatized. So if you want to hear the real story, uh, I strongly suggest that you go watch Citizen Four and check out Citizen Foss. There's a lot of really great info in there, uh, and you can find that again. Just search online, and it'll be um, it'll the website will actually be GitHub. Um, and GitHub, if you're not familiar, is where a lot of geeks like me post their software and things. It's just a fu- kind of a fun place to. F- uh, to post files uh, for people to, people to access. So check that out. Citizen Foss. Once again, the holiday season is upon us, and that's the time when people traditionally give each other gifts. So you might want to go to my website, firewallsdontstopdragons.com, and check out my uh, annual best and worst gift guide. Uh, it's been updated for 2018. And, uh, you know, f- for example, if you're thinking about getting somebody a DNA test kit, you might want to think about that again. Uh, maybe that Facebook portal, nah, probably not that either. <laughs> so uh, if you want to know uh, which gifts are good for security and privacy, check out my blog entry on that. Of course, if you go to the site, you'll find uh, plenty of other blog entries and you can sign up for my newsletter too, if you'd like these things delivered to your mailbox. Uh, I send out the newsletter uh, every two weeks. And of course, my book, you can also find that too. And it makes a great gift, especially, you know, for someone who's got to get a brand new computer or maybe a brand new smart device, uh, smartphone, tablet, those sort of things. Lots of great information in the book. So you might want to consider that as well. And be sure to tune in next week. I've got another uh, great interview for you next week. I'll be talking with Chad Marlowe from the ACLU. We'll be talking about some new sorts of virtual identity. Uh, that is sort of like a an app on your smartphone that will ostensibly eventually replace your driver's license. Uh, there are many states out there that are actually trialing this now, and uh, it has all sorts of uh, privacy implications beyond carrying around that little silly piece of plastic. So you'll definitely want to tune into that. Another great interview. And then coming up uh, the week after that, I'll be doing a kind of a new year's show. So be ready for that. That'll come out on new year's Eve. So until then have a happy holidays, everybody. And I will see you again next week. And until then, as always, don't get caught with your garbage. Day.